The following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing January 25th, 2019. What has mainstream media neglected to mention about the recent coup in Venezuela? Who is Juan Guaido and how democratically legitimate is his claim to the assumption of the Venezuelan presidency? Will there be a Libyan-style military intervention by the U.S. and neighboring countries against Maduro in support of Guaido? Where does the Trudeau government fit into all of this, and what can Canadians do to influence the situation? Is a Syrian-style conflict in the Latin American region inevitable? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we take a closer look at the forces, internal and external, shaping the turbulent events taking place in Maduro's Venezuela, project where the situation may lead, and what it means for the country, the region, and the world. Our guests are Caracas-based journalist Lucas Kerner, Winnipeg-based scholar and political economist Radhika Desai, and Vancouver-based writer and activist Nino Pagliccia. On this week's program, Power Play, the U.S. and Canada back a coup in Venezuela. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 25th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Akin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nihiwak in the Dakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. On the eve of this year's World Economic Forum gathering, some of the most powerful, wealthy, and more prescient capitalists have begun to speak out to their capitalist cousins, raising red flags about what they believe is an approaching crisis. Ray Dalio, the billionaire who found and manages the world's biggest hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates, warned that he and other investors had squeezed financial markets to such levels where it is difficult to see where you can squeeze further. He publicly admitted in a Bloomberg News interview that in the future profits will be low for a very, very long time. The era of central banks providing free money, low rates, and excess liquidity have run their course, according to Dalio. He added, the global economy is mired in dangerously high levels of debt, comparing it to the 1930s. That comes from the article, Global Economy on the Brink, as Davos Crowd Parties On, by Dr. Jack Rasmus, posted January 23rd. More than 250 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli army fire and over 23,000 injured since the start of the Great March of Return protests in the besieged Gaza Strip on the 30th of March until the end of last year, UNOCHA revealed in a report yesterday, quote, Since the 30th of March 2018, the Gaza Strip has witnessed a significant increase in Palestinian casualties in the context of mass demonstrations and other activities along Israel's perimeter fence with Gaza taking place as part of the Great March of Return, unquote. OCHA confirmed that, quote, 254 Palestinians were killed in Gaza between 30th of March and 31st of December, among them 
180 killed during the March of Return protests at the Gaza border with Israel and the rest in other circumstances, but also by Israeli gunfire. Among those killed, 44 were children and four were women, unquote. The report pointed out that, quote, 23,603 Palestinians were injured during the same period, almost all of them during the March of Return protests, and included 5,183 boys, 464 girls, and 1,437 women, unquote. That comes from the article, UN, 254 Palestinians killed, 23,000 injured in Gaza protests, posted January 23rd, originally appearing at Middle East Monitor. According to the North Korean government, the North Korean attack on South Korea on June 25, 1950, was a response to a two-day-long bombing by the South Koreans and their surprise attacks on the city of Heju and other places. Early in the morning of June 25th, before the dawn counterattack in the North Korean account, the South Korean Office of Public Information announced that the southern forces had captured Kejun. The South Korean government later denied capturing the town and blamed the report on an exaggerating officer. Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union proposed that North Korea be invited to the UN Security Council to present its side of the story, but the proposal was voted down. Whatever the cause, North Korean soldiers did cross the border on June 25th, and by June 28th, they were in Seoul, which is only 35 miles away. That comes from the article, Korea, A Brief History Explains Everything, by Dana Visali, posted January 23rd. Medical journals have been thoroughly hijacked by the pharmaceutical industry, as have departments of, at universities and research institutions that are principally funded by private interests. It is no longer a secret that industry-funded studies inordinately convey positive results. Positive research is published. Negative research is suppressed and buried. Consequently, the reality of robust and honest medical research is skewed and distorted. Physicians and medical clinics here, thereby only get a small peek into the actual safety, efficacy, and contraindications of the drugs later peddled to them by pharmaceutical sales reps. That comes from the article, How the Corruption of Science Contributes to the Collapse of Modern Civilization, Part 2, by Richard Gale and Dr. Gary Null, posted January 23rd. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. On January 11th, the day following Nicolas Maduro's inauguration to a second term as president of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, the opposition-held National Assembly announced that Maduro was illegitimate as the country's leader and declared Juan Guaido as the acting president of Venezuela until elections could be held. On Wednesday, January 23rd, a day marking the anniversary of the overthrow of Venezuelan dictator Marcos Perez Jimenez, U.S. Vice President Mike Pence declared that the U.S. recognized the opposition politician as Venezuela's interim president. Several other countries, including Canada, are likewise recognizing the authority of Guaido as the proper head of state and are calling for Maduro's ouster. With uncertainties as to where the South American country is headed, the Global Research News Hour sought an on-the-ground perspective from Lucas Kerner. 
He's a staff writer for the online publication VenezuelaAnalysis.com. He's based in Caracas. We first asked Lucas to address the charges coming from internal and external agencies as to the illegitimacy of the Maduro government. You know, the United States and the Venezuelan opposition that never accepted the legitimacy of the Venezuelan government, not that of Hugo Chavez, who was you know, democratically elected in over three elections, three government elections, or that of Maduro. We just go back to you know, the April 11, 2002 coup that was backed by the United States that overthrew President Chavez, overthrew President Chavez for 47 hours until the people took the streets to return him to power. And then you know, subsequently, with Maduro's, after Chavez's death, with Maduro's election by a razor-thin margin, but nonetheless, a majority of the votes, an internationally recognized election. The opposition, with U.S. support, you know, effectively refused to recognize the results of that election. And this, that inaugurated the violent, insurrectionary turn of the Venezuelan opposition that has been the pattern we've seen since 2013, in which you see these kinds of Guadimba protests are taking to the streets in an effort to overthrow the government by force. That pattern was repeated in 2014. Uh, right after you know, um, the Venezuelan government, the, the ruling party won the municipal elections at the uh, end of 2017, and again in 2017. So the, the issue at stake is, you know, is not the leg- necessarily the legitimacy of Maduro in this presidential mandate or not. The issue is that the Chavistas continue in power in Venezuela. You know, whether whether they, you know, the re- elections are rec- internationally recognized or not, that's the issue for the United States and the opposition. Now to go more recently, we have to understand that on the May 20th presidential election, which is last year, which uh, we were on the ground reporting live, where that the opposition in the United States you know, preemptively uh, refused to recognize that election and called it fraudulent. But even uh, pulling the rug from under the, their own opposition candidate, Henry Falcon, who according to his economic advisor, Francisco Rodriguez was even threatened with sanctions by the United States for daring to violate a U.S. boycott of that election. So the, 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 the roll call from Washington was clear. The orders were, marching orders were clear. That is, this is not going to be, we're not going to allow this election to be, uh, we're not going to, we, we don't want a transition based on negotiation within the existing democratic framework. We want a, you know, basically a, a short-term you know, violent kind of regime change operation in which, you know, the U.S. You know, opposition agenda can be imposed through force, you know, neoliberal shock therapy, the privatization of the oil reserves, et cetera. So fast forward to January 10th, Nicolas Maduro was sworn in for his second term, uh, you know, as corresponds to him being the winner of over 6 million votes in an election where 10 million people voted in uh on May 20th, you know, around 46% turnout, you know, which is, you know, not its average for the region in comparison to Colombia and, you know, many other uh, countries. He, that was a, if, before that happened, the Lima Group, which, which includes the, basically ever, all of the U.S. aligned governments without the United States, basically the U.S. effort to try to create a, you know, when, when they failed to pass in the, the OAS, the Organization of American States, measures uh, expelling Venezuela, censoring Venezuela, like they did to Cuba. They formed this group um, to basically as a lobby against Venezuela, and they announced before whatever was the elaboration that we're not going to recognize them, hmm. um, no matter what. And then Juan Guaido appeared. Juan Guaido was a, on January 5th, he was elected president of the National Assembly. Now, the National Assembly has been in contempt of court since uh, 
July of 2016 for violating, you know, court order about three, uh, failing to unseat three uh, lawmakers accused of voter fraud, but that's not what it's about. It's really that since the, op- the opposition won that election, and this is the paradox of it, the opposition won the December 6, 2015 election campaigning, you know, appealing to popular discontent in a very effective way, won that election overwhelmingly with the same electoral system that they, you know, cried fraud with previously that they have subsequently cried fraud with against uh, in uh, 2017 to 2018. But after they came in, they interpreted this victory as a mandate to overthrow the Maduro instead of try to govern better or, you know, improve uh, the economy, social services, et cetera. So they went and they, and they declared their objectives to oust Maduro in six months, et cetera. So the, the point is that that, that that body has never really existed as an actual functioning body that has that legislature that has sought to govern the country, but it's just been a platform for the opposition's regime change efforts. So Juan Guaido, who is a lawmaker from uh, from Vargas State in the north of Caracas, on the coast, he was elected with 97,000 votes in uh, his district in uh, 2015. He is uh, was educated at you know elite private Catholic university. He went on to do uh, work uh, educational studies at. DESA, which is the, basically the, the think tank of the Chicago Boys and Venezuela, the neoliberal think tank, and also George Washington University. So he was pretty, no one knew his name before January 5th when he was uh, elected president of the National Assembly. And then on January 11th, following Maduro's inauguration, before a rally of opposition supporters, he said that he is prepared to take on to the become the president, uh, acting pre- interim president of Venezuela. Yeah, he's ready to swear himself in for that role. President Maduro has been, at, at least as far back as uh, the drone assassination attempt of August 4th of last year, has been warning the uh, the people of uh, Venezuela that there's something <laughs> something coming. And the events of the last week, uh, which has been called a coup, uh, if this was something that was expected and, and anticipated by the Venezuelan people. I think that the government is definitely anticipated this is going to take place. I mean, they have their intelligence operatives, you know, listening to, you know, among an opposition circle that they have been following, especially, you know, given, you know, I mean, this, this drone assassination is, is very important to point out because this was the first time a head of state, it was an assassination attempt via drone against the head of state. And it's, and it's, you know, it was pretty clear that this had, there were links to Colombia, the Colombian paramilitaries that were involved in this. You know, perhaps Washington also had a hand, would not be surprised. So, I mean, Maduro, I mean, it's important to note that, you know, Chavismo has, you know, Maduro's base has definitely shrunk as a result of this economic crisis, but he definitely retains a hard floor of around, you know, 30%, perhaps more of the population that, you know, is definitely, you know, given what they've been through the, the past five years, it's definitely, you know, it, it's definitely here for the long haul and it's been prepared and, you know, mobilized in all kinds of uh, different social space, social political spaces to resist, you know, any kind of, you know, coup. I mean, we have been in a constant, you know, series of coup attempts. We face a constant series of coup attempts since 2013. So, I mean, this is, the people, the, the Chavista, the Chavista masses are, are no strangers to this, and they have been prepared, they're, they're prepared for anything in that respect. Talk about what you've been seeing uh, out in the streets in the, the last couple of days. I, I was out, um, in many parts of the west of the city yesterday, in uh, Capia, in, uh, in uh, Avenida San Martin. These are 
Many of these are typical uh, Chavista strongholds, also San Agustin, which is a, you know, a very uh, historic uh, Chavista uh, working class barrio. And the, the mood on the street was very tense, extremely tense, but at the same time, absolutely calm. I mean, there was, there was people going about their normal lives. Uh, all businesses were, were open, people you know, buying things, uh, taking their children places. I mean, there definitely is there's an atmosphere of you know, total normality on the streets, but at the same time, you know, a, a great amount of tension, you know, with regards to the, the violence that we've seen the past two nights um, that have been concentrated largely in the popular areas and the working class areas of the city, unlike the 2017 and 2014 opposition protests. And, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, talking to people, you know, pe there's a lot, in many of these cases, we're seeing, you know, young people being um, from outside of these neighborhoods who are coming in, who are being maybe being uh, paid by organized criminal groups. There's definitely a lot of witnesses talking about people who are linked to, you know, drug trafficking, those kinds of things. There's definitely kind of a, a I don't like the term, but a looping element, you know, and this kind of, it, it is a sad consequence of, you know, the depoliticization of, you know, and, you know, the, so the, the consequences of the economic crisis. But, Definitely, it's important to note that unlike that over the past year in Venezuela, we have seen pretty uh, a pretty constant number of social protests around uh, social access to social services, issues with the um, you know government social programs in these same areas. But they have been by and large almost universally peaceful. Whereas you know, according to the uh, the independent human rights organization, Surface. The um, excuse me, so you know, we're we're seeing that you know it's something like uh, something like 38% of these demonstrations over the past three days have been violent, and nearly 30% involving armed confrontations with firearms and other weapons. You know, in, in some areas where a good friend lives in, in the West and Patria, I mean, they're literally on uh, Wednesday night. The, the fighting was so heavy that with it, and the, these these groups had such uh, firearms that they firepower that they were able to repel the police and the National Guard and they had to bring in the special forces. So I mean they're definitely and you know you see you're seeing instances of, of violence like you saw in 2017 in Mérida. There's a case of, of a Chavista who was uh, allegedly uh, burned alive like we saw in 2017 by opposition groups. So there definitely is a real uh, atmosphere of, of great tension and fear with, with regard to these violent incidents. But I think there's also, at least among the Chavista bases, an understanding that, you know, they're going to wait a minute. They're not going to go return fire. They're not going to take up arms. They're going to, you know, let the security forces do their job. And obviously there needs to be, you know, processes to investigate those cases where security forces, you know, engage in uh, violate human rights violations or disproportionate force, et cetera. But there's definitely a conviction that, you know, they're going to, but Chavis have kind of waited out the past 18 years of toolmaking, and they're going to wait this out, and they're going to hold strong, and they're going to persist in this. Okay, uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, you, you seem to insinuate that uh, the, the, the some of the the, the individuals are, are coming in from outside the communities, and you insinuated ties with drug cartels and other unwholesome elements from outside. Can you can you back that up a little bit more, or, or justify what what what's the basis for making those? Uh, assertions. It's all um, basically with local witnesses in case by case basis. You know, I can say that you know in the you know the, the 
ECS Medina Barrio in the West and Propatria, you know, people there have said that, you know, they identified a few of the people who had been taking part had, you know, are known people to be involved with drugs, et cetera. So, I mean, it's, a, it, it's scattered witnesses. We can't make any kind of generalizations, um, but we can, you know, that there are some cases in which there are, you know, certainly, yes, there's definitely, I think, a lot of, you know, protests that are legitimate and not linked to organized crime. But I think like we saw in Nicaragua in uh, last year with the uh, U.S.-backed regime change effort there, there definitely is a role being played by organized criminal elements, which are, you know, very powerful. And because, I mean, it's not just they come in, they control many of these, a lot of these sectors. I mean, not all of them, but they definitely have a territorial presence. We have to be careful in the way we talk about it, but there definitely is a role being played there. Okay. Now, we there were statements that when, you know, shortly after uh, the uh, Juan Guaido had uh, announced that he is, uh, you know, taking on the, the role as, as, as president, uh, there were statements coming out from uh, the military uh, generals, uh, all in support of the uh, the sovereign government of uh, Venezuela, namely uh, Maduro. Um, do you have any sense uh, on the extent to which those voices are representative of all of the military, or, or are there elements of the military that could conceivably break off and, and back the opposition? Do you, do you have a read on that? It's impossible to give you any kind of solid answer to that. I think that we, I, all I can do is speculate that, I mean, I think we, it, 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 it's, definitely, it's definitely guaranteed that the top brass is loyal to Maduro, as we've seen by the statements from the defense minister and the commanders of the, uh, the regional integral defense areas that, you know, basically are the, the, people, the, the, the officers, the generals who practically command troops throughout the country. So, but, you know, the, the question is, at the level of the mid-ranking officers, you know, to what extent, you know, is their loyalty? You know, recall that, you know, it's always been the mid-ranking officers, at least in Venezuela, but also in other countries, from where you've seen the coup, different coups. I mean, Chavez, who was a colonel uh, himself, carried out his military uprising uh, on the 4th of February, 1992. Um, but until now, we've seen no signs of any kind of fissure or schism within the armed forces, and I think that it's also important that, you know, the, with the Bolivarian process, there was a change in doctrine. So there is, you know, the Bolivarian National Bolivarian Armed Forces has an anti-imperialist doctrine. I mean, I think that while there definitely is, without a doubt, tremendous dissatisfaction with Maduro, both among the mid-ranked officers and, you know, rank and file, without a doubt, that does not mean that they're necessarily not Chavista. You know, you can be Chavista and not necessarily be, you know, supportive of Maduro. And just because they don't support Maduro or they're not sympathetic towards Maduro doesn't necessarily mean they will support a president who has effectively declared himself, excuse me, an opposition politician previously unknown who has declared himself president in support of the United States. So these are big questions, but until now, armed forces remain behind the president. There are Venezuelans who are uh, opposed to Maduro, who are critical of Maduro, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're supportive of uh, of Guaido uh, and the way he installed himself. So, do you have a read on how you know Venezuelans are are reacting to to, to that? I mean, are we going to have people in Venezuela been so adversely affected by the, the sanctions and and other? Uh, elements that have you know put them in opposition to Maduro that they'll they'll support anybody 
that will uh you know show some prospect of improving their uh uh their situation do, do, do you have any read on that i'll begin with saying that the opposition itself at the level of its leadership is internally very divided you have you know, a, a more quote unquote moderate wing you know represented by former presidential candidate henry cabriles who you know has was called last year was talking about the need for a pact in transition you have claudio fermin who was a campaign advisor to henry falcon in last year's election who, who uh, a few weeks ago said the opposition needs to return to earth and you know recognize that Nicolas Maduro is president. So there definitely is, there are figures who reject the kind of violent, uh, you know, short-termist effort to oust the government and impose, you know, as a you know tabula rasa, a whole you know, new institutional order without any regard for the you know people who voted for Maduro for the Chavistas. Now, in terms of ordinary people, you know, I think that. Yeah, you know, there's that. It's 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 hard. You know, it's very difficult. When we were in San Agustin yesterday, I mean, we were talking to people, and absolutely, you know, some of the older people in, in the plaza we were talking to, or the you know middle-aged people, you know, absolutely, you know, recognizing because mother was president. Some of the younger people, you know, said actually, you know, said that Juan Guaido was president. Again, that's not representative. It was just a few people we talked to. But I think that it does reflect a certain deep politicization among a lot of people, among a lot of youth, particularly. But I would say that the fact that many people might, or the fact that you have part of the population that, that may support Juan Guaido doesn't mean that they're willing to, you know, be, be cannon fodder and take to the streets to install his government. I mean, the, I mean, I think that the reality is that Nicolas Maduro, you know, whether you recognize him as president or not, and I think that you know, the majority of people in this country, you know, still recognize. Uh, Nicolas Maduro as president, but we need to obviously do polls to, to confirm that. But you know, whether they agree with him or not, you know, they, they recognize that he's the president of the country, and you know, anything that happens has to, you know, has to be you have to deal with him. You know, mm -hmm. There's no there's no shortcut, you know, going through you know uh, through a coup to overthrow him. There has to be some kind of democratic peaceful change, and you know, well, the kind of violence that is happening right now is. You know, I was universally rejected. You know, in these popular areas, because these are the same, you know, people who are suffering. I mean, they they don't want even those who may have sympathy for Guaido are not. They don't want a a violent regime change outcome hmm. or a violent regime change uh, process that the United States has unleashed in Venezuela. Okay. Do you just have any quick thoughts about how you see things um, unraveling over the next cup next week or so? Well, McNicholas Maduro on Wednesday gave the United States 72 hours to withdraw all diplomatic personnel that expires on Sunday. Mike Pompeo responded to him saying that he did not recognize the authority of Nicolas Maduro to withdraw diplomatic personnel. But then we had reports yesterday that they were actually going about beginning to withdraw personnel. So the, you know, the Trump administration is inconsistent about what it, it's, uh, what, what its moves are here, and they're starting to... I think that the, the, the takeaway here is that the coup has failed so far. But, you know, there was definitely, I think, a, a, an overreach, a miscalculation of, that the, the, after they named Guaido president with, and they got the recognition by the United States and its, its you know, right-wing allies in the region and other states, that the, the military would split you know, and you would have Maduro you know, basically kidnapped in his pajamas, like occurred with Manuel Salaya in Honduras, and put on a plane and sent to Cuba or something. 
But that didn't happen. Maduro is still president. Every day that Maduro is president, remains president every day that, you know, life, you know, goes back to normal more and more, you know, in the street, people go out to buy things, et cetera. I mean, that really debilitates the opposition, you know. It, it, it further debilitates Juan Maidó's claim to power because, I mean, we haven't, Juan Maidó has not been seen in public since he gave that speech swearing himself in on Wednesday. You know, he's issued tweets, et cetera, but he has not, we have, no one knows where he is. And that, you know, it's not a good look for someone claiming to be president. You know, I mean, if I was in his position, I would, and especially given the United States, effectively uh, told the government, Maduro government that it would, it could, you know, not, not explicitly, but it could act militarily if they, if they attempt to arrest him or anyone in the National Assembly. Uh, so I would be walking down the street, you know, talking to people, but he has not been seen. So it, it, it really is unclear, but I think up till now, the coup has failed and things are not at all going as planned, you know, as was planned in Washington. Okay. Well, Lucas, I think we're going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much for uh, having you share your thoughts uh, on our program. No problem. Thanks for having me. We've been joined by Lucas Kerner. He is a staff writer for VenezuelaAnalysis.com. He spoke to us from Caracas. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Some interesting schisms are developing internationally. The U.S.-Canada members of the Lima Group, excluding Mexico under new President Andres Manuel López Obrador, are recognizing Juan Guaido as Venezuela's interim president. Russia, China, Syria, Bolivia, Turkey, Iran, and Cuba continue to back Maduro. Moving forward, questions arise as to what are the actual motives of the various players internally and abroad and where this conflict is leading. Joining us by phone from Vancouver is freelance writer and activist Nino Pagliccia. He's a retired researcher from the University of British Columbia in Canada, a Venezuelan Canadian who follows and writes about international relations with a focus on the Americas and a frequent contributor to global research. And here in the CKUW studio, uh, we have uh, here in Winnipeg is Radhika Desai. She is professor at the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba and director of that university's Geopolitical Economy Research Group and a member of the Winnipeg-Venezuela Peace Committee. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Now, let me start with you, Radhika. You were present at the inauguration of President Maduro. And uh, I, I am curious to know uh, what your thoughts are, particularly in terms of who was there and, and who notably was not present. Do you want to just... Absolutely. Uh, it was an astonishing event, and I should say that um, uh, it was it, it, who was there and who was not there was precisely something that I found very interesting. So, obviously, um, a number of Latin American heads of state were there. Daniel Ortega was there. The president of Cuba was there. Evo Morales was there. A number of the Latin American countries were well represented. From other right, uh, other Latin American countries, which are uh, uh, today presided over by right-wing governments, who obviously are not there at the government, mental level were represented by very, very important political forces. For example, the party PT from Brazil was represented. Uh, so, you know, the, the, and other, you know, left-wing groups, social movements, etc. So I think that's one very important thing. Um, internationally, uh, from beyond the Americas, of course, uh, China, Russia, Iran, um, India, uh, all these countries were represented with ver various levels of high delegations and, and, and so on. So I think that it's important to remember that really this is um, uh, the, 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 the war really against Venezuela, which was 
the, the story of which was there and who was there and who was not there is being conducted very largely by the West um, against um, the, the Bolivarian government there. Mm. And were you privy to any uh, interesting conversations while Absolutely. you were there? Absolutely. We had some really interesting conversations um, uh, with um, uh, other left-wing uh, leaders um, uh, who were there for all, all over Latin America. Um, there were also a number of American progressive people there, so that was very good. Um, and one of the b best conversations we had was actually in a group where an, a number of the uh, representatives of left-wing groups and progressive movements were present. And... Um, what we learned in that conversation, which was kind of chaired by the leader of the international section of the PSUV, um, were a number of different things. So basically, uh, as we know, the United States has been trying to overthrow the Bolivarian government for a very long time, basically, essentially, since at least 2002, when they tried that three-day coup, uh, etc. But um, uh, since the passing of Hugo Chavez, when is, uh, the United States, which was then under the presidency of Mr. Obama, Obama has actually seen, has actually stepped up the uh, uh, war against it. So basically, uh, between uh, 20, in 2013 and 2014, that is in the first couple of years after the passing of Hugo Chavez, they, uh, the West was massively supporting the opposition violence, the guarimbas that have regularly take place on the streets of Venezuela. Then in 2015 and 16, basically, uh, the President Obama helped the opposition. They he, uh, imposed sanctions, which have been, and we should talk about the sanctions and how, I mean, basically, the Venezuelan economy is not doing very well. And the key reason for that is the sanctions, and we can talk about that. The opposition showed that it is essentially bankrupt, being unable to use its uh, victory in the National Assembly elections in any constructive way, essentially uh, ending up in contempt of court, etc. Uh, since that time, uh, as uh, this uh, gentleman put it, the United States government under Trump has itself become the opposition. And I think that that was one of the most interesting things we heard. Uh, and then a couple of other, well, let me tell you one other interesting thing that I, I actually was not fully aware of until I went there. And this came out in the context of larger discussions, including a, a brief discussion with the president, uh, pres uh, 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 governor of the Venezuelan Central Bank. All the sanctions, of course, are hurting them. But what is particularly hurting them is the financial blockade and the completely illegal uh, blocking of Venezuela's funds at various places, which means that it makes it very difficult for Venezuela to actually make international payments. So I think that this is one of the key points. That, for sure. Uh, yeah. And Nino, I, I want to bring you into the conversation a little. Um, we had this inauguration uh, take place and... Uh, I mean, inauguration, it's it's not just like a nice little empty ceremony or ritual. I mean, it, it, this especially was presided over at the, in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, so it has some legal and constitutional uh, clout. It's, it's not, you know, so I, I'm curious if. Well, what are the implications of, of, of states like the United States and Canada not recognizing the president? I mean, is that does not ipso facto mean we're not respecting the Supreme Court either? Yeah, well, that, that seems to be correct. Of course, the, uh, the, the, the right answer to that is uh, that um, there is a, a parallel um, um, Supreme Court uh, that was appointed in Washington. Uh, of course, this is a group of uh, opposition uh, Venezuelans, and, and they are, you know, 
claiming to be part of the Supreme Court of Venezuela in Washington, D.C. So that is sort of the, 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 the absurd situation that is um, occurring. Um, now, in terms of the inauguration, I think what is important to, to, um, to highlight, uh, I've been watching it on, um, uh, on television, uh, on my laptop, and, and um, what I uh, have uh, noticed, uh, first of all, is that the, the, uh, the whole procedure was totally uh, constitutional. That is to say, uh, the Constitution of Venezuela uh, has a specific, makes a specific reference to the fact that if the, um, the elected president cannot be sworn in in front of the National Assembly, then it can do it in front of the uh, Supreme Court. And that's what happened. So everything seems to be uh, according to the book. Now, we have to understand the reason why it could not happen uh, at the National Assembly. As Derek has mentioned, the National Assembly uh, of Venezuela uh, that was elected in 2015 um, is in contempt mm-hmm. and therefore is not functional legally. And that is the, sort of the, the main reason behind that. Um, but I, I think it's... I'd also like to add, to, to reinforce your point, the National Assembly, actually, it were, the elections were, uh, were conducted during a time when there were the, the economic crisis was deepening. The opposition uh, had a lot of support from elsewhere, and, and they, you know, used, they were into using all means fair and foul to win the election, and they did win a, not only a majority, but a supermajority. But instead of using this to put forward any coherent plan, program that they would like to do. Essentially, the moment they convened the leaders of the opposition, or they were now, in fact, not the opposition, they were the majority, the leaders of the majority, which were opposed to the government, simply declared that they were there in order to overthrow the government. Now, what kind of constitutional position can you have? Uh, what kind of constitutional role can you play if you go into office to say that uh, in a government to say your chief purpose is to overthrow another part of the government? Okay. Yeah. And yeah. then what they did is the reason they fell in contempt of the Supreme Court is that um, some of some members of the, the left uh, uh, produced evidence that there had been a lot of vote rigging and tampering and uh, essentially vote buying and so on. And so they produced this evidence. The Supreme Court basically asked the the, uh, the National Assembly not to swear in those three members whose elections had been called into question and the uh, 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 the Assembly swore them in anyway at which point the Supreme Court said you are in contempt of the court. And they remain in contempt. And they remain in contempt of the court. That's why as, as Nino was saying the President could not be sworn in in front of the National Assembly. Hmm. Yeah, that is, that is correct, Erica. Thank you for that. Um, I think what is uh, important to uh, to notice uh, is that um, Venezuela has had 25 elections in the last 20 years at different levels. And the only one that, or maybe there was another one, that um, the uh, governing party basically lost was, in fact, the one in 2015. Now, that is precisely the only election that the U.S., uh, Canada, and some other governments would recognize as legitimate. Because we have to remember, this uh, whole issue 
of the elections of May 20, um, um, 2018, uh, the non-recognition of that election, where uh, Nicolás Maduro was re-elected, is all based on the fact that um, there was an, uh, no participation, sufficient participation uh, of the opposition. And therefore, you know, the Canadian government in particular will not recognize uh, Nicolás Maduro as president now. now. So I think there is a, a, there is a sequence of events there that, you know, they're all interconnected. But, you know, the, the principal reason given is that Canada does not recognize elections on May 20, uh, 2018 that elected Nicolás Maduro. And that is fundamental to everything that's happening uh, today. Uh, I think, though, I should add that, you know, the Canadian government has been taking such a stance on Venezuela even before that election happened. So while, of course, you are right, uh, you know, that they are pointing to the illegality of elections, um, they have been questioning elections in Venezuela even before 2018. Right. And, and in defense of, of, of the situation there, I should we should also point out that Venezuelan elections have time and again been certified as being free, fair. In fact, President Carter even said uh, he was there at one of the I think in 2012, he said, you know, that the uh, Venezuelan electoral process is as clean as it can be, uh, etc. So I think that the, the, uh, the elections have been certified time and time again. The opposition itself is divided. I mean, the, the just how incompetent the opposition is can be seen in, in a couple of ways. Number one, as we already narrated the story of what happened at the National Assembly, since that time, all they can think of is boycotting elections rather than participating in it because they actually do not have a program. They have a one-point program, and that is to uh, remove the Bolivarian government, no matter who it is headed by. And so if you have just a one-point, and they have no plan. They wish to be in power in order to then carry out the dictates of Washington. That's all. And no self-respecting country should have such a government. But that is the option. And I would like to add one other thing. Already in Venezuela at the moment, there is an enormous amount of violence towards ordinary poor people and dark-skinned people. If this, which is which is perpetrated by the leaders of this elite opposition, and uh, and their followers. If this kind of government came to power, and there is bound to be at least some resistance on the ground, you don't want to know what it's going to look like when the members of the security forces, uh, uh, if they are loyal to the new government, will authorize all sorts of vigilantism against the ordinary people of that country. It will be not only a civil war, but a particularly horrific one. I want to talk about motives, you know, uh, United States and, and particularly Canada. I'm thinking this is with regard with the United States. It's yet another regime change operation masked as a humanitarian adventure. Um, you know, so I, I don't know if there's anything specific or unique about Venezuela. Yes. But uh, I, I mean, it, one, one point that I would 
that, that does occur to me is that unlike the Middle East, which is essentially in Russia's backyard here, you know, the United States seems to have uh, some degree of supremacy, at There's, least among foreign powers. But, 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 but there is another yeah. very much more important thing. Venezuela, according to all authoritative reports, has the largest reserves of oil. It also has a lot of gas. It also has a lot of gold. It is a mining uh, executive's dream. Okay, this is it, basically Venezuela, and that is the the reason why the United States wants to control, and Canada also wants to control Venezuela, um, is has to do with the fact that it is sitting on all this oil, and also it's a state-owned. Uh uh, well, the, that, that could be broken up and privatized, no? That's true. And, and, and that, you know, uh, foreign mining companies, Canadian, you see, you have to remember part of the reason why Canada is playing such a leading role in the persecution of Venezuela at the moment is because Canada is an enormous mining power in the world. Uh, Canadian mining companies have been investing right, left and center all over Latin America, even extending to Africa and Asia. They basically over the last two or three decades, Canada has, Canada has always had an extractive economy, but this section of the capitalist class has become more and more powerful over the last couple of decades. And I think that we are seeing the result of that. That's one of the chief reasons why the Harper government's or the Trudeau government's policy is not particularly different from the Harper government's policies, because they represent the same people. Nino, would you pretty much uh, be on board with that? Uh, or uh, Totally, totally on board with that. In fact, uh, I was going to add, we have a, here in Vancouver, we have quite a few sort of a Canadian interest in mining in Venezuela that, you know, over time, many years ago, we have been questioning, in fact. <laughs> um, but anyway, but that's, uh, that is totally true. But I think that, that is maybe, uh, let's say, the more um, economic-driven uh, reason, but obviously there are political reasons also that forces, you know, I would say, uh, the Canadian government to uh, question and to not recognize the Maduro government. And uh, the political reason, first of all, is siding with sort of the mainstream, if you, if you want to call it, uh, U.S. position about Venezuela. I think, you know, it has been questioned many, many times, and we have to agree that the Canadian uh, foreign policy uh, in general, it's always, quite often, aligned with U.S. foreign policy. Although now, that is that is quite striking to to notice. It seems quite brazen, though. Uh, at least I don't know. In, in my recollection, I don't remember uh, this kind of robust presence so clearly one-sided. I mean, even if it's behind the scenes, they're more aligned. In this case, they seem so outspoken. And, and, and you know, I mean, I would yeah. say I, I agree yeah. with you, of course, that Canada, uh, you can see Canada as kind of essentially doing what Washington wants um, Canada to do. But the remarkable thing, as Michael was just saying, is that how, just how forward Canada has been. And I think you explained that in part by saying that Canada has a lot of skin in the game as well, in the sense that the Canadian government is acting on behalf of Canadian mining. Although I completely agree with you also that the ultimate, re I mean, the political reason cannot be forgotten. The Canadian government, the American government do not want left-wing governments to succeed. Hmm. Now, uh, yeah. Nino, I remember you wrote a, an article uh, not a couple of weeks ago, and it talked about, uh, well, I, actually, this was the last month when Russia was uh, in the country and they deployed a number of uh, military warplanes, including uh, hmm. two uh, TU-160 long-range 
bombers with nuclear capability. So yeah. uh, you, you're starting to see these sort of uh, uh, an alignment taking there. Of course, as I mentioned at the outset, Russia is uh, backing the Maduro government. What are we looking at in terms of, of where this is headed? Uh, you know, where this uh, difference of opinion as to who the head of state is. I mean, what what are the international players going to do to uh, advance the situation one way or the other? Yeah, well, that's that's a very important question, Michael. I think uh, we have to take a look at the sort of uh, the overall uh, geopolitical uh, aspect uh, of this situation by looking at the countries that are lining up, so to speak, uh, on the side of Maduro or on the side of the opposition. I think it's clear that we are confronting sort of a, a, a divided, um, you know, uh, geopolitical situation. And, but it's divided not necessarily in terms of uh, like the old Cold War, where you had the U.S. and the West against the Soviet Union and so on, I think we are aiming for a multipolar world. That is the future, I think, that we are aiming for. Uh, the leaders of this movement, in fact, have been Russia and China as well. Now, Venezuela in Maduro has declared that openly at the United Nations, uh, just the last year, a few months ago in September, that, you know, Venezuela sides totally uh, uh, on the side of a multipolar uh, world. So that's basically a total rejection of the uh, U.S. position that wants to retain uh, a, a unilateral uh, um, world position, an imperial position. That's what it is, really. So we, have, we are confronting that kind of situation. Now, if we want to be more specific, then we can see, for instance, the role that Russia had or is having in the Middle East uh, towards Syria. Russia is not acting as an imperial country. Russia is uh, trying to balance, in fact, um, the, the major world conflicts that are occurring in the Middle East. And that's they're trying to... Um, um, offset, so to speak, all the different conflicts. And so they are hoping to achieve in other parts of the world, and this specifically in Latin America. Now, Russia and China have had quite um, investments and cooperation, economic cooperation, with uh, Venezuela and other Latin American countries. And as you mentioned, in fact, Russia had a sort of a presence. That was a, quite a statement to land some um, uh, nuclear uh, capability uh, planes in, uh, in Venezuela. Now, having said that, um, I don't think there is any hope that Russia will intervene in Venezuela um, uh, militarily or otherwise. But Russia is very clear that it's calling on the U.S. as interfering uh, in, uh, uh, in the internal affairs of Venezuela. And I think that that statement coming from a, uh, a country like Russia that has a very strong uh, position uh, in the world is 
um, is, uh, you know, taking that, that stance. Um, uh, uh, let me uh, just add, uh, 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 I mean, I, uh, again, I agree entirely with what Nino is saying. And uh, I would add the following, which is that Russia has not only um, landed these uh, planes there, and, you know, it has been there. I think its ships have been going in and out of the Caribbean over the last many years and so on. Russia has also explicitly stated that it will be there to defend Venezuela, to help defend Venezuela in case of foreign military intervention. So this has already been reported in the press. So I think that's something that's important to bear in mind. And I think that, as Nino says, it reflects a multipolar world. And I'd just like to spend a couple of minutes explaining a, a, a sort of the larger background. I think one of the things that we often forget when we, uh, on the left, where we constantly try to say, well, the United States is so powerful, etc. Let's not forget that practically every major foreign intervention that it has made, beginning with Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, um, uh, Iraq, uh, uh, Libya, Syria, it has actually not succeeded in any serious sense in doing anything. It lost in Vietnam. It had to accept the division of Korea. Uh, it has not been able to uh, uh, install friendly regimes in any of these countries that it has been involved in the last two decades. So I think that it's important. That's, that's the first thing. And I think one of the key reasons for that is because American power has never been unhindered. In, uh, uh, until the 1990s, there was a Soviet Union. Uh, there was still China. China is still there. And I think that now, I, uh, as, as Nino said, it's not the old Cold War, but there is a new Cold War. And the new Cold War and the old Cold War are connected because it's ultimately about the same thing. It is, will the United States and the West succeed in subjugating the world or will it face opposition in doing that? And that question still has an answer. It does face opposition. And today the opposition takes the form of a number of these, so China, of course, the first and foremost as an economic very successful power, Russia as a militarily still very important power, and then all the other emerging economies who do not want to have their sovereignty undermined. So I think that that's, so, so we are living in a multipolar world. Before that, we were living in a bipolar world. So it was also in a sense multipolar. And the only other thing I would add to that is that Hugo Chavez was very aware of this. In fact, he coined a wonderful new term. He coined the term pluripolarity. The reason he said uh, he, he coined the term pluripolarity is that multipolarity assumes that all the different poles of power in the world are more or less the same. Pluripolarity underlines that these different countries that become more important, more significant, should be free to devise their own economic systems, and we will have a plurality of economic systems. So, and, and, and finally, one, one final point about that is that he, his, uh, he, he engaged in an enormous amount of institution building in the Americas, particularly creating institutions like UNASUR, Banco de Sur, uh, ALBA, uh, the Petrocaribe organization, and all of these international institution building activity was centered around essentially realizing the dream of developing Latin America, industrializing it substantially. He did not, you know, I mean, he, he set all this in motion, but a lot has to be done to complete it. But he was very aware of that. Okay, I just wanted to, because we're sort of running too close to the end of our time, uh, maybe some concluding thoughts as to where we see things headed in the next uh, few months, because it's, uh, we seem to have reached a, a very critical juncture. So uh, are we looking at some sort of like a, something like uh, what happened in Syria, a so-called civil war or uh, even an outright military intervention? What, what are your thoughts about that? 
I think that uh, in the uh, in the very near future, we will definitely have stepped up pressure on uh, Venezuela. Uh, and I would also say that, uh, well, uh, I would say the pressure takes a number of forms. There's the economic and financial pressure that we talked about. The, there's all this bad publicity. I mean, these uh, statistics about migration that say, you know, every, you know, there are two million people have migrated from Venezuela, three million people. I actually looked up the statistics of the International Organization of Migration, which is a UN agency. The rates of immigration from Venezuela are nothing compared to those from Colombia, Mexico, and any number of countries in the world. So I just don't think that this idea that migration is a crisis. And of course, it, elections have been questioned. So this rhetoric will go on. What's been really heartening, however, about what's happened over the last two or three days is that actually, I think a number of the uh, people on the left, including sections of the NDP, sections of the labor movement in Canada, have woken up to the fact that something very wrong is going on. And they have have been making their voice heard. And I think that the more this happens, the more problematic any kind of foreign interventionism is going to be. I think the presence of Russia, the cooperation of economic cooperation with Venezuela, of China, etc., all of these things will also be deterrents. Of course, having said that, you've got a crazy guy in power in Washington, okay. so we don't know what he's going to do. But I think that, so so we have to proceed with caution and, and expect uh, uh, some pretty bad things. But I think that there are a lot of things lined up against it as well. Okay, Nino, uh, what, what are your thoughts about the next uh, few weeks and months? Yes, if I can add something, uh, and I will speak as a Venezuelan. Uh, I'm quite familiar with what's happening in Venezuela. And, um, and um, my perception is, uh, the media perception is that despite all the uh, foreign media uh, reports and uh, Canada's position, U.S. positions, and so on and so forth, different countries and so on and so forth, I think what we have to look at, where is the strength of the Bolivarian Revolution? And the strength of the Bolivarian Revolution is in Venezuela with Venezuelans. Mm -hmm. That's what the, even Absolutely. the Constitution uh, states that, and that's where it is. A final proof of that is that the army, the Venezuelan army, is on the side of Nicolas Maduro. And so whoever wants to uh, cause a, a, a coup in Venezuela without the army, I think is totally uh, uh, meant to, to, to fail, despite the support that uh, Juan Guaido is asking from the U.S. Recently, he's been asking for humanitarian aid, which obviously implies other things, as we, mm -hmm. we know. Mm -hmm. So I think, as always, the Venezuelans uh, say, venceremos. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, on, on that note, uh, I, I think that uh, we've got to close our conversation now, but I, I really want to thank you for this enlightening conversation. Uh, so uh, I've been speaking with uh, here in Winnipeg uh, by uh, Professor Radhika Desai of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group and the Winnipeg Venezuelan Peace Committee, and also with uh, activist and freelance writer based in Vancouver, Nino Pagliccia. Winnipeg listeners take note, on Saturday, January 26th, there will be a protest against United States and Canadian support for a coup against the democratically elected government of Venezuela, starting at 3 p.m. Outside the U.S. Consulate at Notre Dame and Portage Avenue. For details, visit the Facebook page for Peace Alliance Winnipeg. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. 
You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.